Welcome to the Three Tomatoes Happy Hour, and we do love happy hour and the clinking of glasses and cheers to all you fabulous women who are fully living your lives at every age and every stage. And here's the best news, every hour is happy hour. So whether you clink cheers with your coffee mug or your afternoon cappuccino, remember as the song says, it's five o'clock somewhere. Join us for some grown-up fun, interesting and stimulating conversations that will motivate, inspire, or just make you laugh. And for more grown-up fun, visit our website, The Three Tomatoes, and the three is spelled out, and sign up for our newsletters. Now sit back and relax and enjoy the episode. Before we start today's episode, I want to tell you about a wonderful little art book created by women for women that packs a big punch. It's called Know You're Crazy. And let's face it, we all have our own crazy. And in this beautiful collection of Vivian Beauchereau's art prints, her little mad women as she calls them, art comes to life in the most delightful and relatable way. Learn more at knowyourcrazy.net. So greetings, tomatoes. I'm Cheryl Benton, your host of today's Happy Hour podcast, and I can't think of a better topic for Happy Hour podcast than the topic of happiness. Our guest today is Joan Nehal, and she's the author of a brand new book called Happiness is the New Healthy. Joan has a PhD in clinical psychology with a specialization in forensic psychology. She's also the co-author of the best-selling book, Habits of a Happy Life, 30 Days to Positive Addiction. And we're going to talk to Joan about the new science of happiness and how we can achieve happiness in the smallest of things, even during the pandemic. So I've got my little happy hour glass of wine. So cheers, Joan, and welcome. I'm having water. I'm working, you see. (laughs) (laughs) So we're so happy to have you here today. So first of all, I'm really curious, what is a forensic psychologist? That's such a good question. So what it means is that I go to court. I testify as expert witness. (sighs) Just to demystify it a little bit uh, for your listeners, what I do is I go to court and I talk about things to the judge such as the chances of recidivism. Is this person worthy of handling a curative discipline, for example? Is this person, the person's claims valid? Will this person reoffend? Say, for example, a chronic shoplifter. Mm-hmm. A, what are the chances of that this person is going to reoffend? Is this a person a good candidate for uh, treatment? Personal injury is fairly straightforward. You're looking at post-traumatic stress disorder, those sorts of things. Okay. Yeah. Well, that is very interesting because I really, I, I really wasn't aware of it. It sort of sounds very sort of CSI <laughs> detective stuff. So that's so great. So as a psychologist, what is it about happiness that motivated you to actually write two books on this topic? Cheryl, I've been in practice since 1985, and I've never had a patient come and say to me, Dr. Nehal, teach me how to do depression. They all want to be happy, right? And over those three decades, I've learned a few things as to how to twist or trigger happiness in people. 
how do we rearrange the software in our brains so that we can do happiness? And why is happiness so important? Well, if you look after World War One and World War Two, psychology turned into the art of flourishing. We looked at ways to take a person from one level of strength to another how to be the best possible you. So we were no longer pathologizers. We weren't saying, here comes the schizophrenic or whatever else. We were, we're looking at people's strengths. So that's in essence is what I do. I look at your strengths and I say, well, how can we tweak it just a little bit more and make you so much better off for yourself? Well, that is really fascinating stuff. And let me say, I so enjoyed your book because first of all, you they, for me, there were so many aha moments. And also throughout the book, it's very practical. I love quizzes. You have quizzes, I think in almost every chapter where you, you can sort of you know test yourself on different things. And I really love that you have real world examples with, I guess some of them were former patients of yours with real stories of what people have gone through. And it really, I think the book will really make the reader rethink their beliefs about happiness. And of course, I think the book is so timely right now because your very last chapter deals with how to cope during COVID and, and, and during the pandemic, and we'll get to that as well. So in the opening of your book, you have a really lovely quote, happiness is like a butterfly. The more you chase it, the more you elude it. And you say that when it comes to chasing happiness, we've been given bad information, a lousy map, and really faulty directions. So let's start, I love that. So let's start with what are some of our false beliefs about happiness? Well, look, here's the thing. The more you make happiness an aim, the more you miss the aim. So you use the word butterfly. I love the idea of a butterfly. And if you look at a butterfly flapping its little wing, we have something called the butterfly effect. And that creates wind gust. What are we talking about? I'm talking about, can we infect people with that positive feeling? Can they, in turn, infect their families, people they touch, people they interact with, with happiness? And how do we do that? Well... One of the things I think that uh, we need to look at is what exactly is happiness? Aristotle in the fourth century BC and Xianze in China were both saying that the purpose of life is to be happy. But how do you do it? Well, they say one, you can get happy by pursuing material wealth or finding meaning and purpose in life. So those in essence are the the, in a nutshell, what happiness is all about. Now, what are some of the false beliefs of happiness? Let me just demystify a couple of them. And I'm guilty of them too, by the way, as I say. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> there are no saints over here, okay? So one of the things I remember saying to myself when I was younger is, mm, well, when I just, just get into that size of jeans, I'm going to be so happy. Do you ever feel that way? Until I grew up and realized that the, the, the models were all 16-year-olds. Exactly. Happy, fat, 20 plus, slide my zipper up. <laughs> you, well, I, mean, I remember saying, and I've heard friends say the same thing, you know, Joan, once I win the lottery, oh man, I'll be so happy. Or, you know, I have a friend who says to me and she struggles with her weight. Once I lose those 10 pounds, Joan, I'll be so happy. Or, you know, Forget that job promotion. If I get a straight A, then I'll be happy. So what are we doing? And I mean, I'm guilty of it. 
you're nodding your head, I assume. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I've been guilty of that. (laughs) (laughs) So saying to each other, we say, oh, and don't forget the true love. Once we get true love, I'd be so happy when Mr. Prince Charming just sweeps me off. Yes. Yeah, my foot. So those... (laughs) We know how most of those work out, right? <laughs> Some of us get it all and then go, hmm, now what? I'm still not happy, right? <laughs> we got the straight A's. We lost the weight. We're financially comfortable. We're healthy. But you know what? It didn't give me happiness. So how come? So what people do is they run off and they buy another Louis Vuitton handbag. That's really good for the shopping industry, right? Let's get bigger and better. I had patients who did that too. And you know what? Because of this little thing in our minds called hedonic adaptation, we get used to the object that we have, the Ferrari, the car, whatever, and everyone bigger and better because we get used to it. It's like an unwelcome guest. It outstays its welcome. And we say, oh, I need to get something better now. So this will sound rather strange. I'm saying we should be counterintuitive and invest in things that don't last. So we don't get used to them. Now look, I'm not my husband, okay? (laughs) (laughs) About objects, you know, just invest in a concert, invest in a vacation. People won't envy you because we all have different concepts of what a vacation is and it doesn't last. See, and you know something else? Guess how much money you need to be happy in life? How much? 75,000. Assuming that you have food, clothing, shelter, that's your base. After that, it's all thrilled. So I say to people, well, why not invest in uh, happy money as Liz Dunn and Mike Norton will talk about. What we're talking about there is giving to others. And when you start spending on others in a strange sort of way, you start feeling good about yourself. So yesterday, here's what happens. I'm in the gym and I'm coming out of the parking and I see a a parking attendant about to issue a ticket to someone who obviously had overstayed their time. I just said to him, look, I'm going to put the two loonies in. Do you mind? And he said to me, well, they won't even be grateful. I said, that's not the point. I don't want them to know who did it. (laughs) Just let's get it done. Okay. So what I'm talking about there is a random act of kindness. Because that will make you happy. What about the fact that only 10% of our happiness is due to life events. Do you remember that big list of things I told you, you and I were uh, guilty of doing too? It's one, once, maybe even now we slip at times, but remember that's only 10% of your happiness is due to life events. So if you won the lottery or if you became a quadriplegic, guess what? After three months, you go back to your set level of happiness. 40% of your happiness is due to your intentional, effortful activities that you perform based on the life events. How do you interpret it? What's your subjective viewpoint? Is it going to increase your spirituality? Is it going to give you a challenge? You take American soldiers coming back as and they have a way of blossoming, making something positive out of something that was potentially traumatic and a loss. See? So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the false beliefs. Only 50% of our happiness is due to our DNA. So about it how exciting this is this is why i come in with my happy news and i say we can all do happiness well i love that because you've given us your with this book too give us a way to really reframe what happiness is so how do we start to do this how do we start to reframe this okay 
first of all, we need to ask ourselves, what do I need in my life? What do I want in my life? So we talk about three kinds of lives. We have the pleasant life in which you savor and you go after things that give you pleasure. Then you have the good life, which is what Sullivan talks about in the research, which would be focusing on your job, like you are doing your job, I'm doing my job right now, whatever our jobs are. Then the meaningful life is one in which we devote a considerable amount of our talent to the service of others in whatever form it takes. Now, what the studies show is that the last two, the good life and the meaningful life, give us the most fulfillment and happiness. So being altruistic, take a, take a look at what happy people do. And the studies show that happy people exercise, they exercise restraint, they do not hold a grudge, they forgive. They don't forget, but they forgive and they let it go. They have no problems embracing the fact that they are prone to mistakes and they ask for help when necessary. They rejoice in other people's good fortune and they are sad when you have a bad time in your life. You know, unlike some people who say, hmm, you had a divorce, not me. You know? Right, right. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> That's more, really. Anyway, I won't go into that. What I... <laughs> but being more, being more empathetic with people, it's, uh, that's, it's just like a very big thing, right? But another big thing with these happy people that you can learn and take a page out of their books is they're resilient. They embrace change. They embrace the fact that nothing in life is permanent. So you talk about the pandemic now and people are very upset about it. I've got people who say to me, you know, when's it going to end? I'm tired of this. I'm tired of lockdown. I'm just suffering from pandemic fatigue. Right. And I say, you know what? Perfect right to feel that now. What am I doing? I'm teaching the person the importance of accepting what they're feeling, labeling it, go into it, experience it, and then you can come out of it. Yeah, I, I love that in your book. You talked about that. You had a whole chapter on that about that you don't always have to be. I'm paraphrasing it, but what I took away was running around feeling happy, happy all the time. That it's okay to not feel unhappy, but look in and say, okay, I can accept this, these feelings, and that's okay too. And then deal with how you're going to come out of that. You know, I like what you just said, because it links on to something that I really think is very important in life, namely to understand that life is not going to be happy at all times, that we will have our bumps and bruises. The secret is how do you bounce back? How do you go back by looking at the back and looking at the things that happened in the past? And then I teach people to bounce forward. Yes. And yeah. people tend to do that. They have their bad dog days or their purple funks, as I call it, but they know how to bounce back. They know that they had coping cues in the past. They reframe it. They make effort, effortful, intentional changes in the way they think, in the way they behave. Take, for example, a simple thing right now. If I smile, you'll smile back. There, you did it. Yes, I did. How are you feeling right I, now? I feel great right now. <laughs> Can I tell you a little secret? That's your brain working, not your own. That's, of course, I'd love to take credit for it. That's, <laughs> that's your brain saying to you, it, let's release some neurotransmitters and make you feel happy. Do you know that? So therefore, what am I saying? If you can change your behaviors, look at your facial expressions, look at your posture, you will, the research shows, have a different feeling at the end, a positive one. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and I, and I love too about thinking forward because we all know, we all know unhappy people and some people who just seem perpetually unhappy. And it seems to me a lot of those people are, they're always living in the past. They're always blaming, you know, the ex-husband or they didn't, or this didn't happen or someone else is always at fault somehow instead of, you know, moving ahead. So do you see that as part of this happiness Yes, I like what you said because that, that actually is a very crucial point. It's that uh, way in which you process the life event. We will have divorces, we will have crises, we will have pandemics. Look at what happened in 1918. How right. did our schools deal with that? How did they deal with World War One and World War Two? Because they learned to bounce forward. And we have to do that. Now, you know, we can all go into the blame game. And we could <laughs> say Freudian terms. I don't know about you. When I became a mother, I became so aware of the fact that I had to be super mom, you know? And being a psychologist and a mother is not a good combination. <laughs> it does not go down well. And then I remembered good old Freud said to me, and all of us women, we're bad breasts. You know, so no matter what happens in life to the child, we're going to get blamed. And then I relaxed and I became an okay mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love, I love that. So I, I mentioned earlier on that in your book, there's, there were really several aha moments. And there was one for me that really got me because I tend to think of myself as mostly an optimist. I mean, friends even say to me, oh, you're like, you know, Mary Poppins all the time. And I always thought that was a good thing. But then I read in your book where that really stopped me short when you said that too much optimism or happiness is probably just as harmful in the long run as experiencing too little. So let's talk about that a little bit. Definitely. See, it's counterproductive to say to someone, you can do it. Because what if they can't do it? What happens then? It doesn't change the outcome. Perhaps the only thing is they've wasted some time. I'm gonna tell you about a 2007 study. And in this study, they found that optimism when practiced in extremes is associated with financial impulsiveness and mm. other behavior. Now look, in 1991, there was another study in which they found that Optimism was a hindrance for people trying to lose weight. The more positively women felt about the future, the fewer pounds they managed to shed. So what's the solution? Have more of a middle ground in which your expectations are closely aligned to reality. That's the true value in realism. And I talk about it in my book when I talk about the habit of a happy life. I say, do not pick a habit that you want a positive addiction unless everything is aligned. Don't tell me that you're going to become an astronaut and that's going to be your positive addiction when you know nothing about physics. It's just not going to work, right? Right. Try right. <laughs> and align things uh, or don't tell me that you're going to lose weight and then you just suddenly realize that your wife is dying of pancreatic cancer. This is not going to be a good time to lose weight. See my point? Yes. So I'm talking about realism in the middle of it all. Seligman is a pessimist. He was our father of this whole concept and he is a pessimist, if you, if you see the point. I don't know if you're an optimist, I would say you're more of a realist. 
a realist because from what we've interacted with so far and just before we started as well, I noticed with you that you have a very realistic approach to life. You smile, but I told you the trick in that already. The point is that's not being optimistic, that's just being realistic. And being able, perhaps you've got the coping cues and the skills to bounce forward. Wow, that makes me feel so much better. Thank you for saying that. So there's another chapter that I really want to talk about because it's just so prevalent right now. And that in chapter two of your book is titled Compare at Your Own Risk. So <laughs> we we all compare. I mean, it's just it's just a part of life, you know, this person, how this person looks at the same age that you are, whatever. But all this comparison, which I think always happened before just seems to be so much more enhanced now enhanced isn't really the right word but so much more out there with the onset of social media and I like to think of it as sort of like Prairie Home Companion I don't know if you ever listened to that to that radio show with with uh uh, Keeler where you know all the men are strong all the women are good looking all the kids are perfect that's Facebook life. You know, everybody is perfect on Facebook. But when we're on there all the time, I mean, it's hard not to get caught up in that and not to look at that and compare yourself. And whether you're a, you know, a teenager or, you know, you're a middle-aged woman looking at that, it impacts you. So tell us what you think about all, this whole perspective on social media and the comparisons and does it make us less happy, more happy? We know it's good for connecting. I guess that's the good part of it, right? But what's the other piece of it? I think you answered the question when you used the word enhanced. Everything we see on social media is enhanced. So you get the, the you know, the airbrushed picture of this this woman who looks so beautiful or the fat hair or the thin hair or whatever it is or the buffed figure and you say say to yourself "Hmm, but I'm not there look you know everything's sagging I look down and you know every part of my assets are drooping they are being you know they are being gravity and this thing is moving up in life and what's happening to me and notice what I'm doing I'm putting myself down I never look at some at least I shouldn't say never that's not true I did it recently have you ever gone on social media and compared yourself to someone else and said, I'm better than she, I prefer the way I look? No. No. <laughs> it feeds into our competitiveness and our desire to be better than someone else. But we need to be aware that no two thumbprints are the same. And therefore, no two people are necessarily the same. So why do we have to pour ourselves into that sausage casing that they tell us will make us look good? I tell my patients sometimes, you know, if we were in Africa right now, I'd be a dead store and you'd be positively ugly. (laughs) You get the point? It's all cultural. So why are we doing it? And that's the one thing. Our research, by the way, to get serious for a moment, the research shows that when you compare yourself to someone else, your self-esteem takes a beating because you're looking at yourself as not doing as well. The other issue is fear of missing out. So I got to go on the device because I got to see what she is doing or what he's doing. Hmm, my life is so boring, right? 
That's what you say to yourself. I had a patient say to me recently, you know, it's so bad now that, you know, my life is so boring. And I said, what do you mean by that? And she said to me, well, here's the way it goes now. You know, I can't even go on Instagram and, and tell them how exciting my life is because it's shut down. It's locked down. <laughs> so there you go. So those are the that I think can be very dangerous. They can be very bad. They can also lead to bullying, which is something I have a pet peeve about, that it could lead to cyberbullying, it could lead to eating disorders, because I want to, you know, look as good as she. We don't see on social media, which I really wish they would show, is a middle-aged woman having a regular workout. Why does it have to be Iron Man? Why does it have to be, you know, boot camp? Can it not just be a regular easy thing? Because when I get my patients to do something simple, like give me 10 minutes of your time to go for a walk outside, they can do that. Right, exactly. I get it, yeah, then, it just sets those unrealistic expectations that you know you can be Iron Man when you, all you want to do is get your 30, your 30 minutes of exercise a day. So well, what, what would your advice be to those of us who are spending time on social media, which we probably all are, and maybe spending too much time on social media, it can be such a waste, but is there just too much? I mean, are there times when we should just get away from it or even just not be on it for a while? I know people who have done social media detox, does that actually really help? It does help if you're addicted to it. And notice my caveat, a little bit of it does not hurt, but be aware, it's like caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. Be aware of what it really is. Be aware that it's artificial, it's not real. As you said, it's enhanced. Be aware as well of your vulnerabilities. Check in with yourself, with your body, with your mood. If you're feeling a bit fragile today, now is not the time to go and compare yourself next to someone who's having a fabulous life. Now, ironically, I used to be one of these people, and I say used to, who was dead set against it. And I would tell people, if at all possible, stay off it for two days in a row and see how you feel. If you're a CEO, you know, sure, you'll use it for whatever you need it, but try and limit the amount mm -hmm. of time. Now I've got to eat my words and I'll explain what I mean with lockdown, with social distance, with six foot, you know, being apart from people with not being able to embrace. I have to say social media has helped a lot of people, including me to stay connected. So yes. again, we have to put it within the context. And I'm saying I'm as guilty as anyone else for saying that's a terrible thing to do. Don't you do it. But now I'm saying, as I always say, in moderation. Now above yeah. all, you to take your, you know, your, your, your glass of wine and me to cheer with my water. It's all good. <laughs> oh, I love that. So there are, you cover so many really important topics in this book. They include loneliness, which is a very big one, communicating without connecting. I think we, we just covered that a little bit. And, and also in that section, you have a series of really great, great questions to ask ourselves on how do we connect with people, negative addictions, positive addictions. And then I love this one, the importance of connecting with ourselves and, and self-care, which is obviously really important in some of us, especially women, we neglect that a lot, I think. So you, you devote full chapters in your book to this and listen, listeners, you need to get the book because there's just so much important information here and you're going to learn so much. But through all of this, you're really talking about the differences in how happy people 
and miserable people handle these issues. So can you highlight, you started this a little earlier, but highlight what are some of the key things that happy people do that make them happy? Okay. I should answer that by going back two steps and saying the definition of happiness is purely subjective. It's your sense of overall well-being, your sense of, and, and think about it right now, your listeners as well. When you feel happy, what happens to you physiologically? Do you have an increase of energy? Do you have more enthusiasm? Do you have more zest for life? And those things I would say would make you happy. Now look, in terms of being happy, I'm a strong proponent of exercise, physical exercise. If you can just create for yourselves, today, as you listen to me, one positive addiction, it should be exercise. Let it just be for 10 minutes every day, try and do it every day for 10 minutes and you will start feeling that you're in control of your life. More important, it reduces your stress levels. So what's another tip that happy people do that unhappy people don't? Unhappy people, tended to ruminate or to think a lot about the past. It's like what we called, you're too young to know it, but in my day, the broken record. The record was stuck on the gramophone and it stuck and it just stayed on that symbol. You know, it's like when he left me and that was it. And then my life just mm -hmm. fell apart. Right. Okay, so that's what an unhappy person will do. They will ruminate about the past. And they have a way of perfecting the art of being miserable by blaming other people by abdicating responsibility, by just saying, what is me, it's not gonna change. This is life, life is suffering, and that's it, and then you die. On the other hand, a person who is more realistic would say, unhappy things, tragedies happen, and I know how I'm gonna change. I'm gonna go on the highway to gratitude this morning. And while I'm savoring my cup of tea or coffee in the morning, I'll practice some mindfulness. I'll get in touch with how my breathing is. I'll start self-care. I'll start nurturing my body, especially during a pandemic. Especially we women, we tend to give so much. And what do we do? First of all, self-soothe. Slow yourself down. The, during these difficult times, this is not the time. Productivity is not synonymous with thriving. Lower your expectations, please. That's what a happy person will do. They will look at their goals and change them ever so often. The goals aren't cast in concrete. They're very malleable. So today I didn't get it all done. So that tomorrow's another day I'll get there. Tomorrow, maybe. And if not, too bad. But I'll continue. So gratitude is something they do. They're very grateful for what they have. I make people write a letter, a gratitude letter to someone who was important in their lives, whom they've never thanked. And if the person is still alive, go knock on their door and read that letter, please. It's guaranteed to be a tearjerker, but such a wonderful thing to do. At night before you go to bed, another thing I get people to do, which happy people do, by the way, is ask yourself a simple question. What went well today for me and why? The and why is positively correlated with increased self-esteem. Give it to someone to do for three months, and I will tell you those patients will tell me they feel better about themselves. Because all of a sudden, it's not the world doing something to me. I did it. I'm in control. Another thing they do is they practice acts of kindness. They're altruistic. They give to other people, give back. One of the things I really like talking about is something called time affluence, meaning they deliberately choose to work fewer hours and to have more time to have social connections, to connect with themselves, to connect with others. The way you, we used to in the past, you remember way back when, when we had a village and we talked to people and we told stories? This is so important, especially during a pandemic, to be able to tell your story. 
Oh, that's so beautifully said. Really, all of that is such great, great wisdom. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to <laughs> interrupt, but I just love that. You were going to make another point. No, you go ahead. Yeah, no, I just, uh, that was just all so powerful. And I love that advice about going to bed and asking yourself what went right today and how did I make that happen? I've never thought about it in quite that way. And that's one of the many things I love about your book because you have so many important pieces of advice that you're sharing with all of us. So we are getting close to the end of our call, but before we end, I really do want to talk, have you talk a little bit about the coping really with the pandemic and your last chapter of the book. As I said, the book is so timely. You do talk about it. And I know that right now, I mean, we're coming up on a year of this and and many of us seem to be coping well with it all along. But now I feel a lot of us are getting to that point. And I've had this conversation with a lot of friends and colleagues right now where we really do have pandemic fatigue and we're finding ourselves getting cranky and getting worried about, you know, every time you listen to the news and now there's new variants and there's just this sort of overwhelming sense right now of will our lives ever actually get back to normal? So how do we deal with this right now? I mean, I know it's temporary. I know we're going to get back to normal. I know things are going to get better, but we need to get through that. So what would be some of your suggestions right now to help us all deal with that? I check my sleep patterns and I check the way my body feels because people, including myself, we're all suffering on some level. And I'm not going to be Pollyannish and tell you I don't suffer as well because I do. I, I, I think in terms of our world, and I think what we're developing right now is what I call post-traumatic growth, a post-traumatic global identity. For the first time, we're now looking at mass mutual reliance. I'm wearing a mask, you wear a mask. Why? Because we're protecting each other. We're looking forward to seeing each other, so we're going to see less of each other now. Mass mutual reliance is something we did not have in the past in which we all need to focus on each other. Another thing that's very, very important, I think, is self-soothing. Comes back to what I said earlier on when I said you need to recognize what you're going through now and deal with it. Don't run away from it and tell me, oh, let's be happy. My foot, we're not going to be happy, but I can have a very good time in a bubble bath tonight. I can <laughs> I can self-soothe, excuse me, and I'll not even feel guilty about it, and I'm not a sociopath, but I will sit with my candles and my Mozart and have a nice old time, and don't you touch me. I am having self-soothing, okay? And then I'm going to sit with an audio book, and I will listen to something that's pleasant. I turn off the news after 6 p.m. because it's bad, and it'll be there for me tomorrow, like a rising fart. Do I need that? I don't think so. So <laughs> that's okay. You see this? This is my little iPhone. I put it to rest. It never stays in my bedroom, it goes away. But I recharge it and I use that as a metaphor to people. And I say, you recharge your phone. Why not recharge yourself? Like I'm doing, I will do the things that I think are important. I will listen to an audio book about something that's fantasy, something light, and I'll fall asleep with that. You know, those are the kinds of self-soothing we need to do. Another thing we need to do is to be gentle with ourselves. Be aware that we're going to be impatient at times. And let's tell our spouses, look, I'm going to want to bite off your head. Don't take it personally. Maybe run. But understand this. <laughs> my tolerance for the situation right now, okay? I want to quote from my book, actually. How about our collectively exercising our survival instinct? Darwin talks about survival 
of the species. And he talks about survival of the kindest. The kindest in the species will have a strong propensity for survival. I talk about here, the global identity we're poised to create is one in which we value the health and well-being of everyone. Happiness will follow when we give back. Like the butterfly pupa in the chrysalis, we can break out of our old normal, discard the things that didn't serve us well, harness our emotions, and emerge from our silken prison to direct our energies towards the development of our post-traumatic, globally interdependent identity. The young butterfly's wings are still wet and fragile, but as it descends above the trees, it grows stronger and more confident. The world looks the same from up there yet it's already very different. Oh, that is, that is so beautiful, Joan. You were amazing, really. You've just, you've made me feel so much better in this little bit of time we've talked about. You've made me happy, I have to say that. And you're just a very, very wise woman and everyone really needs to go out and get your book, Happiness is the New Healthy. And how do they find you? Do you have a website? Uh, website jonahnehal.com but they can buy the book actually this book happy is the new healthy they can get it on amazon right now right amazon and probably booksellers everywhere so i cannot thank you enough for being our guest today you are truly i wish everyone could see you because it's going to be podcast she's absolutely beautiful with fabulous hair but you're beautiful outside but you can we've all heard when we listen we hear your inner beauty coming out and um, I just can't thank you enough for being my guest today. So we wish you well. Stay safe. Stay happy. <laughs> and uh, we'll all talk to you soon again. I hope this has been terrific. So thanks for being my guest today. Thank you. Bye-bye now.